given that it's six o'clock, um, I welcome you to this, uh, this book launch. Uh, very exciting to be here with two of the authors of the book, uh, Broken Bonds, The Existential Crisis of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, 2013-2022. Um, my name is Jeroen Gunning. I'm a professor um, at the other side of the road at King's College, um, Middle East Politics and Conflict Studies. Um, I, uh, I've studied Hamas um, uh, for part of my, my kind of career, and so therefore very interested in, in Muslim Brotherhood type organizations and how they evolve over time, and also the relation between sort of um, violence, repression, and, and sort of counter responses, etc. So I'm, I'm very interested to to to, um, to read your book and also the discussion afterwards. Um, just to note that the event is going to be recorded, uh, and there will be pictures uh, being taken throughout. So I hope that. I have your consent for, for this. Um, if not, you have to raise it with Nadine back there. Um, also note that copies of the book uh, will be available to take for free at the back of the room at the end. Um, the other thing I wanted to say before I introduce you was something else. Um, no, it's gone. Okay, it will come back if it's important. Right. Um, so... Yeah, so we're very pleased to have two of the speakers here tonight. Uh, so Abdelrahman Ayash is next to me. He's a fellow at the Century International and director of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood Working Group there. He translated three books on civil-military relations and the Muslim Brotherhood um, and has published reports and articles about the Muslim Brotherhood uh, for institutions, including the, the um, um, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Arab Reform Initiative. And next to Abdelrahman is Amr Al-Afifi, uh, who is the research manager at the Freedom Initiative, a uh, uh, Washington DC-based NGO focused on human rights in the Middle East. Uh, and his current dissertation research at Syracuse University explores the political psychology of trauma amongst political prisoners. Um, so you can see that there's a lot of overlap with their work and in this book as well. Right, now I remember what I was going to say, um, um, which fits nicely here. Uh, so what we're going to do is, Amr and Abdurrahman are going to speak for about 10 minutes about the book, sort of highlighting some key themes. Then there's going to be a Q&A just between the three of us, where we just we pick up some of these themes and sort of dig some deeper into that for about 15 to 20 minutes. And then we throw open uh, the floor and then you can also ask questions and we can continue that. Because um, this had worked in the past quite well. And uh, uh, so we'll see how it works tonight. Right. So over to you. Um, Thank you so much. Thanks to the LLC Middle East Center for uh, organizing. Thank you to Nadine uh, for making sure this happened. And thank you so much for agreeing to share the events. And it's an honor to share this with you. Um, thank you all for, for attending as well. Um, the book is a truly collaborative effort. We are uh, uh, lucky to, to have worked on this together. IES is a uh, here, a very smart uh, researcher and uh, and scholar who has been thinking about thinking critically and working on the Muslim Brotherhood since 2006. It's uh, part of the movement of bloggers. That if you read the book, you'll find a long uh, prologue uh, that that talks a little bit about that. But he's part of some of the the, the later iterations of what we study at some point, and uh, and uh, someone who's been publishing about this for quite for quite a while. Um, uh, Noha is a historical psychologist who uh, thinks a lot about uh, or and thinks and has written quite a bit about uh, nationalism in the late uh, 20th century and, and and how the Muslim Brotherhood fits into that story. And uh, we'll hear a little bit about that too. And for better or worse, I'm a political scientist uh, <laughs> um, or or one in training. 
uh, and I, my work on trauma and political imprisonment and what that means and what it means at the person individual and at the communal level as well sort of brought us all together to think about the different levers of what we're trying to argue in this book in the sense that there's a an identity crisis that the brotherhood is undergoing that I'll talk about a bit in a minute that fits within like the historical context that it came out of that it in some ways has moved on from but in others it hasn't and a legitimacy crisis in terms of like uh how this very patriarchal type organization contends with authority and contends with legitimacy and what that means and what how that bears on their politics moving forward and also at the individual level like what it feels like and what it feels like to be a member, uh, an older member, a younger member who has gone uh, torture, who has gone in prison, who has undergone uh, like different um, periods of imprisonment, and how that affects their their commitment to the organization, their commitment to the cause, and their own life trajectory. Um, so, what is this book, and what is it? Art? This book is a book that's based on eighteen months of ethnographic work and interviews of uh, senior uh, leaders former leaders, former members uh, in the US, the UK, Qatar, Malaysia, Turkey, and Germany. Uh, so quite a bit of uh, traveling and jumping around and talking to people. Uh, but it's it's something that I think was quite necessary. I mean, the complexity of the organization, especially the organization in exile, sort of necessitated and, and required. And we argue mainly that some of the tools that the organization had developed to cope with certain historical incidents um, throughout the waves of repression that they've undergone, especially in like the post-1952 uh, Egypt, worked really well for them at one point. But then when this crisis happened, it sort of became the same tools that stand between them, stood between them and like and 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 coping with the with the crisis as as best as they could have, or or growing or dealing with the with the different waves of repression. And under that, we say that there are three main crises the organization is undergoing: an identity crisis. By identity crisis, we essentially say uh, that the organization at some point maybe knew what it wanted to be, what it grew up, but now it really doesn't, and that it was it grew in tandem with. Egyptian nationalism and it, and, it, and it sprung out of that, but it never really had a positive definition of itself. And it sort of like molded and morphed itself around what was happening. So when you look at their political ideology, for instance, if the state is to the left, they're a little bit to the left. If the state is to the right, they're a little bit to the right. And it's that adaptability that helped them a lot at one point. But when push came to shove and when they were in government and when they had to run the country and when they had to offer something positive despite the repression that happened there was there was not much there and then when the crackdown happened there was even less and that there's a legitimacy crisis that happens where for too long the legitimacy being within the organization was based on ordeals right so there's a cadre of members who had undergone horrific torture and imprisonment in the 60s under under Nasser, who had or who people who had spent some time with Hassan Banna before he was eventually assassinated, right? And there was like either an, an ordeal-based legitimacy or sort of like a founding father's-based legitimacy. And then when the founding father people died, the ordeal started becoming a lot more important. But then in the midst of this crisis, when you don't have the 60s ordeal to, be, to, to, to go back to and sort of like build your legitimacy that way, you see this this tension between people who had undergone these waves of repression historically and then people who are sort of like closer to our age cohort right who have undergone cc or like this like an, a cc based uh ordeal legitimacy right or like these 
So people who are much younger, lower ranking in the organization, who have gone the same atrocities, and then you can't use that sort of like moral superiority thing over them. Like, I've seen this, you haven't uh, type thing, because now people in their 20s and 30s have seen similar types of repression, and the 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 crackdown sort of flattened that, right? And the organization really never had bylaws and stuff like that to, to build it back up, and I think we'll, we'll talk about that moving uh, on. And finally, the last crisis is the membership crisis. An organization that was like very proud at some point to have to be a, like that it's able to mobilize people to the streets and that it was able to recruit folk uh, in different ways, either through helping them through universities or through charitable donations and stuff like that. The organization at some point does not have the same uh, society that that it was in because now it's torn between all the countries that we went to and interviewed folk uh, or we talked to folk into. Uh, it doesn't have the same amount of money that it used to because like repression has cost them quite a bit of money and it's extended their resources. And it also does not have the same answers that it used to, because like within the context of Egyptian politics, it's like an under severe repression. There's only so much you can do vis-a-vis -vis the state. You don't have to be very politically sophisticated, but similar to what we discovered when we were talking to Rahim Munir before he passed in November, 2022, uh, uh, when we asked uh, like I think Russia, the, the, the war in Ukraine was happening, the, the uh, what strategic power competition was starting to come back to the agenda in terms of like how the U.S. thinks of itself and we're changing from like a unipolar world to a multipolar, bipolar, however many polars we want to think of and nodes of influence and all that type of stuff. Um, Ibrahim Munir could, couldn't fathom, and I think the organization could not fathom how it relates to itself in the like a regional context, in a global context, and in an international system context. Um, and members are disillusioned by this, and the organization that was once everything for them no longer had uh, the answers that they were looking for, or no longer had answers to these uh, crises. Uh, I'll stop here. I guess we'll say, uh, add, add some more, and then we'll get to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> thanks, Hamza, and thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for being here, yeah. and thank you, Marine, and uh, the Middle East Center at LSE for inviting us. Of course, yeah, I'd like to start by acknowledging what's going on in Palestine. It's, uh, it's very difficult actually to speak about anything uh, that is that could be more important than what's going on in, in Gaza and the genocide that that's, uh, has been going on for almost 20 days now. But I think it's, what, what, what we are going to say here, I think some of it could be um, explanatory to uh, to what's going on. And I think uh, it could be useful to understand some of the dynamics uh, in, in Palestine, Israel as well, uh, as in Egypt. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just, uh, I want to start by saying a few takeaways, main takeaways of, of the book that I think uh, are very important. Uh, and I think, uh, as Amr mentioned, what we argued, the crises that we discussed, but really there are a few main points that, that uh, we'd love if, if you just get them from, from what we wrote. Um, the first point is that there is a real confusion between Islam and Islamism. And many researchers have been who have been studying Islam, have been studying Islamic movements, they, they have been differentiating, mixing between, between both. And, and I think uh, this led to uh, a very or misleading um, conclusions and and uh, a misunderstanding to the real problems uh, of of uh, of Egypt and and the Islamic movements at large. Uh, I mean, when people start talking about 
uh, about Ikhwan or about uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, they, they literally start talking about Islam. So they don't ask the question about the Muslim Brotherhood and democracy. For example. No, they say Islam and democracy. Islam and women, Islam and human rights. So, but but it's not about about the Islamists or and I don't like to use the word Islamists <laughs> that much. But but yeah. So w- what we wanted to differentiate or to 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 say here that the real um, differentiation is imp- is important because some words that are uh, the, like Islamists or political Islam they could have some explanatory power. But they are not universal, and they are not able actually to explain everything. What, what I want to say is that if we are talking about Islam or, or Islamic movements, people actually, and I think this could be a segue to talk about Hamas and what's going on in Palestine as well. There is this trend of the ISISification of, of, of Islamic movements. Uh, it happened with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt post 2013. You, you'll find a lot of uh, Islamic institutions. Not al Azhar per se, but some some Islamic scholars uh, comparing between the Muslim Brotherhood and Hawaii or or uh, and Al Qaeda and all that. But if you are looking in the in the different responses uh, of Islamists or Islamic movements to different challenges, and and if if you will have a constant that is Islam. And, and the Islamic component will be Al Qaeda and ISIS and Hamas and, and the Muslim Brotherhood. So I think, by definition or by very basic analysis, it will not be the factor that, that the, the defining factor for the changing responses of these movements. And 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 I think this is what, what one of the first important things that uh, that we need to uh, to say is that uh, many ideas and responses that come out of Islamic movements are not because of the Islamic component of them, but because of the the, the, the um, environment they are in, the, the socioeconomic um, uh, conditions that they grow in. The other thing, the other takeaway is that the the Muslim Brotherhood is not only, or the, the most of the Islamic groups actually, are not only motivated by, by ideology. It's very important to understand how Many researchers, when they study the Muslim Brotherhood, they focus on the again the Muslim part and not the Brotherhood part. But the, the, if if you look at the Muslim Brotherhood as a multifaceted uh, phenomena that has a lot of uh, co- complicated uh, layers of, of uh, and dynamics between the, the members, the leaderships, the ideology, and the interpretations of texts. Yeah, I think it's very important to to uh, to understand that whatever defines the responses and the reactions of, of Islamic movements could be many things other than only ideology. The third takeaway is that I believe, and we, I think, safe to say that we believe, uh, that the biggest challenge to democracy, actually, it's not the opposition, it's not the Middle East uh, opponent groups, and, and of course, they are not Islamic movements. What we are saying and what we are talking about is that the establishment actually have been uh, or has been affecting the responses of of these organizations, the Islamic organizations and the opponents in many countries, not only in Egypt. Uh, I'm not taking away the agency of these organizations uh, and their moral responsibility, but I think that and what we have seen in Egypt and what we have seen in, in, in many other countries, 
when in Tunisia, for example, the the the, the establishment, whether the military, the bureaucracy, the deep state, uh, and and the the uh, of course the the judiciary, the intelligence, the uh, Ministry of Interiors, all of that, they could be much more affected uh, or much more um, important factors on, on on democratic transitions and uh, on democracy than the, the the Islamic movements such. The next takeaway is that CB and security approaches they do not work uh, to understand Islamists and to understand Islamic movements. You know, just spell out CB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Counter, countering violent extremism. I think it's uh, many researchers when they study Islamic movements, they just look at them as again a security threat. They are not as a multifaceted uh, phenomena as as we were saying earlier, and and I think. It's uh, the existing research on Islamists. It, it varies a lot between uh, I mean, some of them or some of these researchers are very simplistic, and, and some others are, are pretty comprehensive. And and I think uh, some researchers or some researchers actually are affected by many other factors uh, that don't necessarily uh, necessarily mean that they, they are objective. Um, regional powers in the, in, the, in the Middle East are affecting research that is uh, coming out from Washington, for example, and, and, and many other countries as well. The last takeaway that I wanted to mention before moving back to uh, Iran and Amt is that you cannot annihilate the Muslim Brotherhood or Islamic movements without annihilating the grievances and the, 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 the problems and the questions that they were that they rose to answer in the first place. And I think this is a real um, problem in Egypt and in other countries as well. And I think we, we shall witness this in Palestine as well, in Gaza. Uh, I mean, no matter what the, 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 the political power or the authorities will do, they will not be able to end the, 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 the response to a problem without ending the problems. And, and I think when the Muslim Brotherhood first started or initiated in the 1920s, 1928, they were coming out to respond to many problems in Egypt at the time, starting from, of course, the fall of the Caliphate or the fall of the uh, Ottoman Empire a few years before that, but also to uh, the, the missionaries, uh, the Christian missionaries coming to Egypt at the time. And this is very important, a very important note to say that the Muslim Brotherhood, when they started, they, they, they focused on actually the same tactics and the same tools that the missionaries were using in Egypt at the time. So they were using uh, hospitals and schools mainly uh, to, to counter the, this, this uh, effect. So what I'm trying to say is that the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamic movements, and what, what we are trying to say in the book, that these movements are organic to the society. They are... Um, they, 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 they were actually there for a very long time, and they are part in Egypt, for example, they are part of the Egyptian nationalism, the Egyptian um, liberation movement that started with the British or during the British occupation uh, in, in, in the early uh, 20th century. And uh, th th there are many problems that are rooted in, in, the, in, the, in the, the society and the, the, the state in Egypt that are not addressed or that were not addressed yet. Hence, 
the Muslim Brotherhood and, and other manifestations of, of this phenomena will, will, will keep rising until these problems are raised. Thank you. Um, I think that that's a very good introduction to, to build on. Um, first of all, I, I really recommend you read the book. It's, it is, the details of it is extraordinary. And I think the three perspectives that you bring together uh, really speak to each other. And then you can see that in, in the book and, and how, it's, uh, how it's explained. Um, so yeah, I, I very much recommend that you take away a copy of the evidence of that first. Um, I, I wanted to come to, to uh, so, so there's a lot of, of very interesting material on the Muslim Brotherhood, but I want to somehow to kind of link it to broader questions uh, that often become discussed when it comes to opposition movements in, 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 in governments that, that, sort of, that go through different uh, repressive phases. Um, and so I wanted to ask first about, sort of, you know, there's the whole literature on inclusion, moderation, or the obviously exclusion, radicalization, that, that if, if groups get included in the political process, that they become more, more kind of moderate. Whatever that, that means in, in that particular context, but more kind of more pragmatic playing by the rules of the state, etc. Um, whereas if they're excluded, then they, they might become more radical in their means and, and etc. Now, what's interesting, you, you describe particularly sort of, um, the, the, sort of the, the clampdowns um, on, 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 under Mubarak in the 90s and then on, on the CC in, in, in the 2010s. Um, and, and the response of the Muslim Brothers. Uh, sort of organization and of members is, is very different between those. In the 90s, you described as more sort of a, a withdrawal from, from politics and moving into civil society and, and the religious sphere and sort of almost a salivization of, of the Muslim Brotherhood. Whereas in, in 2010s, um, uh, a lot of the response that becomes uh, streets, uh, protests, uh, uh, more, kind of more fighting violence, etc., but also the disintegration of, of a lot of the institutional structures of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the movement. And I just wondered whether, in, in the context of these broader debates and inclusion, moderation, exclusion, radicalization, but you could say a little bit also comparing the different kind of periods. I mean, you, you don't say that much on, on the, the Nasser period in, in, in there, except in, in terms of the the, the, the legacy that, that, that leaders have from that, that period. But maybe comparing sort of the, the, the clampdowns on the, on the Nasser, Mubarak, and Sisi, uh, and a diversity. Semi-inclusions under under um, 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 Sadat in the 1970s, uh, and then in the 2000s, the brief opening, and then 2011, 2013, and and maybe say a little bit what you think that that this particular case says to these broader views, which are often very simplistic, right? And I think you you, point, you paint a much more complex picture here. So, there's there's a lot there to chew on, so I'll, I'll try to, to respond to the bits of it, and then and I guess what will fill in any gaps or, or, or any additions. I think with, like with the with the moderation inclusion literature, there's this big, always this big element of like, and this is Fudler's work and some other work that's going to come out of like moderation towards what, right, or moderation from what and towards whom, right, yeah. and and I think and and some of it has to go with like this this inherent assumption that these like. Uh, People who self-identify sometimes or are called Islamists or sometimes also self-identifies as, as Islamists, and um, that, that there's something inherently wrong with the way they're arguing, and, and they are often are like quite misogynistic and racist and horrible in some of their views, right? Um, but the, there's something that we're like, if we change a couple of ideas, if, if we're, they're included into the political party, they're included in parliament, um, that by that they have to moderate for for whatever reason, and they become like less scared, right? But I, I think the issue with that is like, what is the normative basis against which we're basing this moderation to, right? So are we looking at certain indicators that are inherent in 
the state, for instance, right? And that's the basis of, of more, that's the normative basis against which the Muslim Brotherhood would be leaning towards. Are we looking at certain like global value indicators? Is it against like this inherent like liberal democratic assumption that they're moving towards and therefore they are moderating or, or, or uh, becoming like better actors in, in better actors to deal with, right? Or, or more comprehensive actors to us. And I'm not sure that necessarily makes sense, even if we think of like, uh, because so if you think of like today's Sisi, for instance, right? Today's Sisi and uh, Morsi before he passed, like the rhetoric they espouse, Sisi's rhetoric is like super, super religious, right? Like, mm-hmm. like um, Monica Marx has, has done some work on this, right? Like, like you can think of Sisi as an Islamist. So like he's our, in Egypt, he's our first Islamist dictator, sort of saying, or our military Islamist dictator. Sisi believes that he gets divine visions and interventions from God. He said things like, if we were doing the wrong thing, how, like if we, if God was not with us, how could have we accomplished all of this? He said things like, I've seen in my visions that like I've seen visions that God has told me, you're right, keep on going, keep on doing this. I've seen a sword in my hand and a watch on my arm and all this type of like really weird stuff that's that's like can be like swiped off or like swept under the rug as 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 ridiculous but it also speaks to like a deeply inherent religious ideology if we're going to take like religion at the face value of this right there is there like a deeper ideology behind this similar to the ikhwan maybe it could it be a little bit different definite do you know so i think like when we think of like the normative basis against which we're like moderating towards that we need to complicate that quite a quite a bit before we think of like moderation and inclusion as necessarily happening and but when we think of like the the opposite of it right this radicalization exclusion bit and we see this in, in prisons in egypt too right like people that uh I've spoken to for the human rights stuff, not for, for this book, who are close to the state are say stuff like, we're worried that if we let the sub bits of the 60,000 political prisoners who are uh, in prison, who are uh, mostly dissidents, most of whom are probably related or like we're, are assumed to be uh, closely related to the Brotherhood in some way or another, whatever that might mean, is that they're going to march to the streets and like being radicalized. They're, they're in prison, they're they're radicalized, they're, they're full of grievances. They might have uh, met some ISIS people in there, right? And they're going to come out and they're going to blow things up. The problem with that, and, and we see this in how the state operates as well, right? So before there is uh, any, any presidential pardons in Egypt, and this happens, uh, it's not happened as often as it should, but every couple of years, there's some people who are released, people who are uh, state religious ideologues, like Sam al-Azhari, for instance, and if you've ever had to hear him talk, I'm very sorry, um, <laughs> come out and, and or go, go to prisons and talk to people and talk to these young men, uh, mostly who have been in prison for close to 10 years or so, and he talks to them and he's just like, does ideological checks on them to make sure whether or not they've been radicalized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've seen from like the people who have been released is that there there has not been uh much radicalization there's been like increased exclusion that that has happened in terms of the type of social stigma that they're uh under as former political detainees being alienated from society unable to get jobs being uh uh, routinely checked on by security officers by uh by amidala by other types of of entities that, that that sort of like prolong the period of repression, but we haven't seen any radicalization. So there's no data, at least in this Egyptian context, to to, to support that. What we do see, however, uh, in terms of this radicalization stuff, is that the state deals very differently um, with 
members of extremist groups as opposed to members of the Klan, as opposed to members of like liberal and leftist groups and stuff like that. And I say this not to say that the state is right or wrong, but that, that even the state itself, I think on some level, at the working level of officers who are managing this, see some of the variation and like look at the human element and look at the personal element uh, of what this inclusion moderation stuff might look like, what this exclusion radicalization stuff might look like, and take individuals at face value. Don't think of like broader ideological strokes of people moving to the right or moving to the left and stuff like that. Um, and Khadi Anani has done some work on this as well, and Wendy Perlman and World Science, and like there's like big push of like understanding emotions and what they work with and like subjective and individual type interpretations as opposed to like larger sweeping uh, remarks about uh, about what the organization is or is. The other thing is that when we look at how the organization operated and, and, and we write about this a bit in the book, is that at the moment in which there were violent factions of, uh, within the organization. There was also a group of the organization that was uh, traveling and speaking to different Osar. Osar are like the small or shuab, like small sort of like neighborhood level organizations uh, or neighborhood level communities of people who, who are uh, from the brotherhood uh, that would say things like maintaining the Egyptian state and is one of our core objectives of uh, in, in this time. And this was like 2015, 2016, the height, at, like post Rab'a, it was as violent as it had gotten, right? Where we're seeing like extrajudicial killings happening in the street. There's mass, mass uh, repression, mass protest. So like it was a moment in which the state was being at least post Rab'a the most violent, but we're seeing that and we're, uh, people are saying that maintaining the sanctity or like the uh, safety of the Egyptian state uh, was at, of the utmost importance, was one of their goals. Um, and then the, the last bit I'll, I'll say about this is that repression affects people, right? Or uh, unless my dissertation is wholly wrong and repression does not matter, uh, which is a possibility, I think repression does really matter. And it changes people's psyches and it affects communities, but I don't think it's linear in any way. Uh, and we were talking about Bibian's uh, work. I think Bibian's work is really important in, in that, as understanding like trauma and repression as being interpreted communally, not necessarily being linear, right? It's not a, it's not a binary, it's not a zero or a one, mm -hmm. right? So the way, and when you talk about like the difference between what happened under Nasser or under Mubarak and under Sadat, repression is also contextual, right? Um, I've worked on uh, people have undergone sexual violence in prisons in Egypt, and we've worked on them, of, on, I, like, I've documented worked on men and women and members of the LGBT community, and everyone understands, like, people go undergo the same act of violence, but people interpret it differently, right? And they interpret it differently because of their own experiences and because that this violence is also understood within a context, right? So like repression is worse now for the average and for the average Ikhwani, because you feel as though you are, and, and similar, uh, like you, you are mm, betrayed by everyone. You're betrayed by an organization that doesn't hear or understand you. You're betrayed by a society that doesn't hear or understand you. And whereas in like the 60s, you can, by through some like acrobatics, find yourself in Saudi Arabia and teaching at a university or a school there or whatever, you don't even have that same outlet. So you're in it like, uh, gaslit essentially by 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 a world and a society that and, and that makes it worse. Repression under Mubarak, not to discount anyone's experience, and the body keeps a score, and community keeps tabs, and all this type of like really important psychological stuff that we need to take into into account. But repression under Mubarak was like had a different social currency, right? Like you are not the the purpose was not to annihilate. The purpose was to like 
take someone in for a little bit, disrupt whatever plan they had going on. The relationship between Ikhwan and the security apparatus was there. So it was understandable. If someone's like father or mother, or like some tragedy happened, you can make a phone call and the person will go like see their, their dying parent or whatever, right? But in, in, in the situation we're in now, and like why Ayat, what Ayat was saying was really important, the state does not have strategy about how to do with, how to deal with this, right? And when people don't have answers, they think we can just annihilate it. And when you when you annihilate, you try to annihilate an organization, there is no back and forth that creates whatever what that politics and that dynamism uh, is. Yeah, um, maybe a couple of quick points on that. Um, so, so I I think that about inclusion. Is that the, the a comparison with the Turkish century could be very important because I think that what has been going on in Turkey, for example, since the 1980s, yeah, it, 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 Turkey has has been through a much harsher repression than uh, than Egyptian uh, or the Egyptian regime has been inflicting on its people. But the 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 thing about Turkey is that three four years later. The military, they gave up power to some extent, and then the 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 the, the civilians were running the country, and um, and, and and people who uh, are actually from an economic background, some people like Mahmoud Mahidin, for example, could be um, they, they 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 worked very hard to rebuild the democracy in Turkey, and that's why I think that Islamists actually. They were able to rebuild their their uh, constituency and to keep uh, holding on to their peaceful ideology. But one 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 important thing to say about the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood, and again, this is this speaks to the moral agency and and the responsibility of the Muslim Brotherhood, is that the founding texts of Hassan al-Banna, founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, they were not that clear. They they are ambiguous, they are vague, and and sometimes they are very hollow. Um, and and when the Muslim Brotherhood started facing real problems, real society problems, they couldn't answer uh, to these problems, and they couldn't face these problems with the texts or with the codes from Hassan al banni The Muslim Brotherhood has failed to produce an intellectuals over the past 60, 70 years, and uh, the only person who uh, came up with new ideas it was Said Qutb. It was a very difficult phase for the Muslim Brotherhood that actually is still debatable inside the Muslim Brotherhood. So for many inside the Muslim Brotherhood, including supreme uh, leaders or, or general guides, Mushidin Al-Ami, uh, many of them actually, or some of them, they, they didn't agree with Sayyid Qutb's idea. Um, so yeah, I think uh, repression, as Amr said, repression affects people, but also that the accountability and the, the transitional uh, tools to fix What's going on uh, in, in 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 the repressive regimes? I think it could affect how how people think the the societal factors and uh, the 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 personal factors could be much more important. And we have some of our friends who have been doing work on that. Uh, to the extent that actually, I think the right question to be to to, to ask at some point, it will be why not. Much larger. Why, why didn't the whole Muslim Brotherhood actually turn to violence? And and it's not why did we have just a few hundred members of the Muslim Brotherhood who turned to violence? I think 
it's 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 important to 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 know this. One last thing about about what I'm saying, it's about the society and the state and how uh, the president and and the government is in, introducing itself as the 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 caterer um, for the religion. And uh, I mean, over the past few years, uh, the Egypt has been through one of the worst first crackdowns on, on human rights in, in its history. But uh, let's talk about religion, because many people actually were arrested for insulting religion or, or insulting beliefs. Many people were arrested because of uh, many female, uh, not activists, actually, they are TikTokers and, and people on social media. They were arrested for, for immorality and debauchery. And yeah, the, if you read the prosecutor's statements that come out, yeah, you'll find them. I, I, I think if, if there is a sheikh, if there is a Muslim scholar who wrote them, it won't be much different at all. And and I, I think it's it's really important to understand how society and how uh, the state is affecting also religion, <laughs> and not to be limited to the silly types that yeah, Islamists they they are just. Uh, manipulating religion because actually everyone in the Middle East is doing it, and actually the states are the biggest manipulation territory of the religion. Yeah. Just one thing I want to add on really quickly: when like back to the radicalization, exclusion, radicalization element of this is that when we not all violence is created equal. Do you know what I mean? I, and I, th I think that's important to know as well. Like in the context of. And this is not condoning anything anyone has done, but in the context of like the post-2013 stuff, the nature of the violence that was being committed was very different, right? Like we it wasn't a group of people organizing to bring down the Egyptian state. It was people who were, uh, and there's a great book called Bleeding Hearts on this. There's a bunch of like interesting research that's been done on this as well. And like there was like violence, and talk about this about a bit in the book, the violence that the uh some groups within the Brotherhood then started started mainly around like protecting uh, or securing protests, right? And, it, and there was a lot of big gendered element to it too. <coughs> Sorry, where, uh, and, and some of this actually happened, some of this was probably inflated a bit, uh, where like um, officers would would uh, kidnap women off the streets or, or arrest women. And some of these women uh, were sexually assaulted. And there's some uh, narratives about and stories about women who needed to get Sorry, some of this might get a little graphic. Needed to like they needed to, to smuggle birth control in because they, these women were being raped by officers and stuff like that. And a lot of that sort of like really inside of life. So it was not an ideological stance against state, and it's, it's not a liberation against state or whatever. But a lot of it was very selective in that sense that like there is no justice system. There is nothing. There's no recourse for any of this. There's impunity. There's uh, again back to like IS talking about state religiosity. There's a faith that's like, these are khalaj, like hit them where it hurts, hit them all, kill them all, right? Do you know what I mean? So this is the context at which like some of this radicalizations, it, it's not necessarily exclusion. It's like the lack of accountability. There isn't a just society. There isn't a justice system. There isn't a rule of law. There isn't any of these recourse mechanisms in which um, we're seeing a group of people who are choosing not to, to, to engage with and like taking on means that are, that are uh, quite extreme. I think like it's, more reactionary than it is ideological mm -hmm. and is it like sure some people might like use religious rhetoric but i think the way we think about or the way personally i think about religious rhetoric is how is some like this stuff exists within society do you know what i mean and as like you're you're a group you're going to organize you're going to pull from the ideas that are there and you're going to move on with it right and then what we see what we saw with most of these organizations is that it it's not the case that they were all like arrested away or killed away. I think like 
it was selective to a point. Some of these people were able to like find the person who raped his sister, find the person who killed his mom, find the person who like arrested his dad or whatever. And then like the nature of the grievance changed and they moved on, right? So it wasn't the case that like the security element, the security fix to this actually worked. It was a case of like, plus they were done and 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 they went. Yeah. But that's that's very interesting because um when you look at, at at other research on on movements that, that become violent, that it's often it's 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 people who are there to do to protect a, a protest, then they they develop the skills of violence and, yeah. and they become sort of the, the skilled violence givers. Um but that leads me to my, my next set of questions, which is around organizational dynamics. Um and again, there's a lot of literature on different kind of groups uh, that looks at what happens to organizations when they're repressed. What happens to organizations when they grow old in terms of the, the oligarchy and all that kind of stuff, that, that stuff happens? Um, or what happens to organizations that become more, more professionalized, etc.? But I think what's really interesting about your book, you kind of you show that during 2010s, it, this is not just a crisis caused by um, imprisonment and executions and exile. You know, that comes the, the, the structures of the, of the organization start to break down because the people who used to um, occupy those positions are, are no longer there. But there's also um, this change in, in a kind of in a, in a legitimacy or an authority paradigm as to who has the authority on what what basis. And I think you make very interesting points that there's a difference between um, how authority was actually given to 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 people in Iran and what their institutional position was. So sometimes people who were more junior had more authority because they were from an old generation or because they had been in prison under Nasser. And so it, it, there was that, not that match. And then you have this, these new experiences of people, younger uh, members who um, who are being tortured and also have had this, this kind of the, the ordeal. Um, and that then, of course, changes how they see the authority of the others. Um, and and I, I wonder also whether there was uh, there's an element in, 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 in that some of the people who, who joined in 2010s or who became more kind of active, um, for, for them, political activism and street activism was sort of the main action, whereas for the older leadership, the main action was about religious community, sort of looking after each other, um, you know, but, but not kind of streets activism, etc. So can you say a bit more how you um, how you see these organizational dynamics impacting on, on, on people's views of authority and, and their place in the organization, how these different repressive uh, tactics from, from the states impacted on, on, on those internal organizational um, dynamics. Um, but also this, what you said earlier, that the, the the, the Muslim Brotherhood didn't come up with answers. And so, so how does that then uh, feed into this, this kind of organizational mix? But also, what would the future then look like, I guess? So, the first thing that comes to mind when you say this is a couple of uh, anecdotes. Uh, and the first of which is, is someone we spoke to who grew up in a very uh, in a household of very high-ranking Khwani, who was married to someone who was the son of another uh, high-ranking Khwani member, and she's, uh, we were talking to her, and they uh, was interviewing her, like, so we were very lucky that we were doing these interviews when, like, there were two big factions, a faction led by Ibrahim Munir, who was based here in London, and Mahmoud Hussein, who was based in Turkey, and both of these factions, like, really wanted to prove they were right, and as uh, probably you found in your research sometimes when people are fighting and they want to prove they're right, they're more eager to talk, right? <laughs> Which was uh, cosmic luck on our end, but uh, it really helped with our uh, with our book. But so we were talking to her and I was like, okay, given the factions, given everything that's going on, how do you feel about this? And she said, I realized that there's no such thing called Ikhwan Nandifu anymore, right? And Ikhwan Nandifu is something that if you spent any time in like 
funny circles, you hear like kind of from like the people high up, right? The people who are like at the helm of the organization that certainly like uh, come off as having a crystal ball through which they're making decisions that are uh, informed and that are deep and that are insightful and that are research-based. But then in the midst of this crisis, you, you realize, well, there was no crystal. It was probably like at best an eight ball that they were faking and saying like a yes or no, right? So there, there wasn't a there there. And I think that's when a lot of the, the legitimacy and secrecy in which the organization the organization had to build and was shrewd in and the way that they view hierarchy and authority sort of broke down when push came to shove and there was nothing to look up to. You, they, People looked up and they saw nothing. And the people looked up and they saw no one. And I think that even though this person, <coughs> sorry, this person grew up at like a very elite household, so to say, um, was said verbatim, I still believe in the ideas but I don't believe in the organization anymore. No organization could that. And if you, again, this is a very serious thing to hear from Bunny because at some point the organization is more important than the idea. And that's one of the problems that, that, that we discussed, right? Um, and the, the other anecdote that comes to mind is someone who uh, was born in mid to late nineties, right? And who in uh, 2014 was arrested and in prison, they had uh, something they called uh, it's quite interesting, like it's sort of like a news agency. They were technically operated technically as a news agency, but in prison they called it Shu'un al-Ma'nawi, which is different than Shu'un al-Ma'nawi is like public morale, so to say, right? Uh, and that probably tells you a little bit about how seriously or not seriously they took the news in the sense that like they would get like a shred of information that was probably true, but then they'd like blow it up to be something uh, that's not. As in, they'd say that they would hear that there was a protest, a, a small protest at uh, a university, for instance, in Alexandria, where they may have been. And people, uh, by the time this is shared in, uh, in prison, they'd be like, People are coming to liberate us, right? Or uh, the streets well, are, are are way too loud to be ignored by the government. Um, so, anyways, our the person we were talking to, let's call him uh, Omar for the sake of the the uh, making the story go fast. So, Omar was like, I realized at some point that the stories that I'm hearing in prison and what I'm hearing from my dad when he comes and visits me are are quite different. So, I uh, when we had a visitation, everybody visits together, right? Like all the or prisoners at the time were all put in the same room, and they they saw their families, or many families saw like every, everyone was was in one room, similar to how you would think of like a U.S. visitation or, or how it's portrayed in Hollywood, right? If it's not behind a, a, a glass a glass uh, mirror or a glass, can't use like screen, screen, thank you. So he goes and he talks to his dad and, he's, and, and he gets some, some more news and he goes to the more senior Ikhwani leaders that are there and he says, I don't know where you guys are getting your information, but I have a paper here that was just like copied verbatim for, from what's actually happening in the streets. And I want to share it with you just so you're not giving people wrong information, right? Uh, and he said, well, you, you don't have a place here. This is for us. This is for the senior Ikhwanis. You are just a kid. And what he said was like, Prison has flattened all of us, right? You're here just like me. We're both prisoners, right? So whatever seniority dynamics happened before sort of did not translate to that context. They translate in some ways in terms of like organizational and hierarchical power, like who is going to like distribute the food when it comes in, who's going to share whatever. But when it comes to this flow of information stuff, it sort of flattened out a bit. 
to where his legitimate, like he was able to, this young Omar was able to build legitimacy based on this more ordeal he was going. Whereas the senior people, person, just because he had undergone prison or because he was like technically higher, hierarchically higher than he was, did not have the same, could, could not, couldn't use that uh, anymore, right? They've both been to the same camp, so to say. They both have the same uh, cap on, or like, like not to, to be, to, to degrade prison to that, or to belittle prison in that way. So, and, and I think that that shifts, right? Like, uh, in the midst of this crisis that was going on, they organized a number of youth to come and to talk to about, like, for every side to convince the other about that, that they were right. And people would be like, we went through this in the 60s and we know what's right. And, and younger folk would be like, we just came out of this and we're telling you we're, you're wrong. Um, one of the interesting things about the legitimacy aspect, and I promise I'll stop talking in a minute, um, is that but there's been quite... Don't have a tremendous amount of data to say that there's been a shift, but we know like one of there are some organization that's uh or like a group of students, graduate and undergraduate students, uh who have organized into like a community of about 200 people, uh, who are mostly clan or just left their clan who are studying social science. So it's like everything from uh science, sociology, to anthropology. And I think this is quite a shift, and it's not because if you've you've done any uh, CVE type studies or radicalization stuff, there's always a question of like, why are they all engineers, right? Maybe because engineers think they're smarter than everyone else, but we can keep that aside. Uh, but I think the shift towards uh, so social sciences is interesting in and of itself because they're all people who are trying to understand how did this happen to us and how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? The stickiness of this is still to be debated, right? I don't think that Flynn are undergoing a certain like internal revolution in which they're going to come out of this as the Democratic Party or like the green progressives of the world, right? Uh, but I, there, there is a possibility. There is a possibility uh, that some of these ideas, some of the, the explanations of how we're wrong about a lot of stuff and the grievances these people have, that have pushed into social sciences might make it up the ladder, might shift something. But regardless, it, I think it's it's an interesting and important development uh, uh, to some of the because it doubts people's legitimacy in the floor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm aware of the time, so yeah, I like you. This very short, but uh, but yeah, I, I just say an anecdote as well, a personal one, and because I, I I was with the most brotherhood actually until 2011, and and my father joined the brotherhood before me, and he lived it even before me. But when when uh, when my father was trying to push me to pray in time, no, no religious stuff, I, he was uh, telling me that yeah, I'm dealing with the Muslim Brotherhood as uh, any communist would deal with with his the 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 communist party in Egypt. And then I, 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 then in 2009 I was arrested actually, and the state security officer almost told me the same thing when he asked me many questions. He said that. No, you are with yeah with the younger generation of women who are interested in politics and not religion, you know. And and I think this generational shift between religion and politics, yeah, we'll see for a uh, brotherhood member like my father, and for a state security officer like Mahmoud Bursi, and 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 the the um the, the thing is that it's very clear for the the. Uh, the members and the leaders uh, alike. I mean, recently, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood was telling us that he attended this conference in, uh, in Turkey where with, with the, some members, and one of the highest ranking leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood was telling them that I haven't seen, I, I have seen, it was actually a mixed uh, conference. So 
uh, females and males were there. So he, he was saying that it's very strange that you are talking to each other. It's very strange that you are not praying at night. And it, it, this is not what the Muslim Brotherhood is. But for them, they, they were participating to know how to, to start strategize and how to see uh, the Muslim Brotherhood plans for the future if they have any. But but actually, for the leaders, no, they, they thought that the most important thing for them is the, the, the to be devout Muslims, to be uh, religious enough. Although religion is not uh, an integral part in, 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 in the policy of the Muslim Brotherhood, I believe so. I think they are a sector of the Egyptian society that is affected by the religiosity of the, of the society in Egypt. But it is very important, actually, in the ascending organizationally in the organization. So the promotion that, that, that is happening, and actually, it's, it's, it's a very sad truth about the Muslim Brotherhood that they actually, many of them, they, 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 they want to prove that they are religious to their superiors, for them to know that they are good enough for them to be promoted uh, to, to a better membership position or a leadership position. So, uh, and, and of course, the repression actually, it affects all of this, or, or what, 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 how the state is dealing with, uh, with, with, with the Muslim Brotherhood is, is affecting how the, the, the relation to religion. And usually, in, in, in a normal circumstances, the interpretation that you will get from, from religion uh, about, I don't know, uh, again, opposing, uh, opposing the regime or, or uh, being in, in, uh, in the opposition or being in a, in a political party or in a political coalition, their choices and their interpretation of the, the, the founding texts of Islam, Quran, and, and the Hadith, they, they, they will use much different interpretation if they are under pressure. And, and if, you know, yeah, you, you'll find what ISIS is interpreting from Islam in the, in the old books of, of Muslim scholars. And you'll find how, I don't know, the Act Party, Erdogan is not, but, but I mean, yani, yani, the, the, you'll find very progressive Muslims using much different interpretations in different contexts because of the, the, the conditions and the circumstances they are in. So I think that, that again, the state is, is a very important factor in how people respond and how people interpret uh, their ideology and their texts. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Right, um, we're, we're, how long can we go on for? Uh, because it's, it's a bit late. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yes, the floor is open. And, um, please, when you ask a question, introduce yourself, um, and then we'll get from there. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and it's the morning. I'm a master student in College London. Uh, and so, uh, so one of the biggest things comes the Muslim Brotherhood, like we think it is Qatar. And like in 2002, the Gulf countries cut the tie with the Qatar because. For several reasons, but one of the reasons was the their state sponsorship of the Muslim Brotherhood. And very recently, they restored it twice. They met in the desert about Ayula. And so does this mean that the Qatar, the Kingdom of Qatar has uh, stopped sponsoring the Muslim Brotherhood? Or, and if it is, it, uh, will this be, would you assess this as the actors of their financial support of the Qatar, uh, one of the significant factors for the existential crisis of the Muslim Brotherhood? Yeah, let us take three questions as a short bundle. Um, are there any? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, thank you very, both very much for the you, Rupert Wallace from uh, I'm a former student uh, here at the LSE. Can I ask you a question in two parts? Uh, and it's a much broader question, uh, and I haven't read the book. Uh, the first is the type, can I come back to the title? Is there a suggestion that the existential crisis is also for Egypt as opposed to Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood? And the second thing is, 100 years on from uh, Hassan al-Banna's founding of the Muslim Brotherhood, when, of course, the, the whole polity was not about Islam, is there now, a, could there be a suggestion, why is the word Muslim in the expression Muslim Brotherhood? And you mentioned about confusion about Islamism, uh, Islamic Islam, and yet there is the very word of a member of Islam in the title. Yes. Um, I'm Hamian, I'm a PhD student at UCL. Um, one thing both of you guys talked about is CC's use of like religious language and rhetoric. Um, and if that's the case, what actually is the crux of the, the anti-Muslim Brotherhood sort of rhetoric domestically in Egypt now? Because I think from the West it's portrayed as like a religious secular divide, and the opponents of the Muslim Brotherhood are portrayed as sort of like secular opponents. But if they themselves are also using a lot of religious rhetoric, then what are they really, how are they defining themselves against Muslim Brotherhood? Mm -hmm. uh, let me just pick up from the last question on the uh, religious secular divide and the anti-MB rhetoric. I think on, so, one book that's really, you, you might have read this already, but uh, Liz Nugent's After Repression book is really, really good because it talk, talks about like how, um, how repression affects people's psyche and 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 then how how within how mbs view their own repression as opposed to leftists in egypt and how that brings them together at some points and how the city uses that to to, to bring them together at some points and to, and to pull them apart and the implications of that in terms of polarization and stuff like that when you think of the uh so that's just a quick note the religious secular divide um that's to say that the religious secular divide i think is is is, is real and it's based in grievances but it's not really it's it's Shared an ideological rhetoric, but I don't think, especially in Egypt, there's not there's not a lot of ideology really because there's not a lot of policy really because it's an autocratic state, right? Like there's some big ideas that people assimilate to, but when you think of like the religious secular divide in Egypt, it goes back to the 70s. And if you follow the people, there are people who are just like like yeah, I mean you know, either pro-reported reports about each other, where like um some are uh, really mean to each other. Like it's I think it's I, this might be like a. I, I don't think it's that real, to be completely honest. I think it's real in terms of there are grievances. I think there it's real in terms of uh, that people really like the networks are have been established and developed and stuff like that. But I think it has more to do with like what the state is doing to repress and who's favoring over the other. But it's not that ideological because like there there hasn't been space to develop enough ideology. And I don't think like, and ideologies haven't been really tested, right? So like leftist ideology since in the last, like from Sadat onwards hasn't been really, really tested in terms of like, mobilizing capacity or in terms of like how, how how much of a solution is it providing to people's problems. And Hitam Salem's classless politics is also like, a great uh, book on this as well. And because it, it starts this from, it like says the history of this from the seventies onward. Uh, in terms of like the anti-MB rhetoric by the state, I think a lot of it is that these are like uh, religious deviants, and where like state religion is is like true religion, and like you should be doing what we're uh, what we're doing, and this fits within like a larger, broader thing of like the politics of Islam in in the West, and what the UAE is doing, and what the Abrahamic faith might mean or might not mean, and stuff like that. So like I think it's part of like a larger movement of 
uh, Muslim quietism that's spreading. And I think that's like more becoming part and parcel of state religion. And there's something more to say about that. And also like some of the anti-MB rhetoric is that like they were part of destruction that happened and instability and stuff like that. So, so there, there's a lot to hate there. Um, but, and then I th like just really quickly on the... Uh, on the existential crisis of Egypt, then I'll leave the rest to you. I think Egypt is an ex in an existential crisis, except that like it's a lot worse for them because their quote like their expectations that they might fall on their loans. I think some of the like the Egyptian government has some of the problems that the Ikhwan has, right? In the sense that they don't have new ideas, in the sense that there's an oligarch that does not want to let go, and in the sense that I think like the 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 the, the cabinet of like civilian folk that they're they're gonna pull out to like continually justify the shelf lives of them get continuously shorter and shorter and shorter because the state keeps on getting like increasingly ridiculous right uh, so it's 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 a crisis that and, and also by eliminating the muslim brotherhood the state does not have a political counterpart that they can they can they can talk to right which is like a big issue security wise so if people go like are marching on the street like you can't, an officer can't call Khairat the Shalkar or whoever in the organization and be like, there's tens of thousands of people, we'll give you guys what you want. You just have everyone has to go back home now, right? There is a situation now where they've created like a different security threat of sorts where people are mobilizing in ways they're not 100% sure of, uh, are feeling things they, they, they're they not, it's just harder to penetrate a non organization than it is to penetrate an organization, right? Um, so, so yeah, they, they are, they have some threats, but I think in some ways they're similar and some ways they're different. Mm -hmm. Hey, thanks. Uh, so yeah, I, I'll also address some Prof's questions first. So about the existential crisis of Egypt, actually we don't really talk about this, but I think you, you are right. Uh, there is a, a really good book. It was not translated yet by Ahmed Naim. Ahmed Naim uh, is is uh, an Egyptian analyst, uh, leftist one, um, and and he wrote about this that the Egyptian society actually is in a phase of of this. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah this I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, and 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 I think it's it's uh, the we said in the book that the Muslim Brotherhood is a member actually to the Egyptian society in a way. And yeah, the, the crises that the Muslim Brotherhood are going through, they, we can see very similar crises like them in 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 in, in the Egyptian state, in the government, in in, in uh, even in the church actually. Uh, to to some extent, and and we need in Egypt, and this is what Naim has been saying, a new social contract. I know it's a very big word. I know it's a very uh, difficult thing to do, but yeah, it, it could be difficult. Naim actually is very about it. He thinks that it will be very difficult for us to or for Egypt to to uh, to um, to get to a new social contract without a lot of sacrifices. But uh, but I, I I agree with him that it's necessary. Uh, the the uh, the other thing about the Muslim part uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood, I think that and I mean uh, for the Muslim Brotherhood themselves, they think this or they believe this is one of the main however They are one of the main constants in in, in their rules. And 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 I think even though I I really disagree with with the Muslim Brotherhood right now, and especially on this part. But I think they are entitled to, to, to choose this and, and they are entitled to uh, to decide what sources they, they could rely on. I mean, no one would ask the Christian Democrats in Germany, for example, uh, why, why are you keeping the, the name? And, and I think it's, it's for, for the Muslim Brotherhood, they think 
again, I disagree with that, but they think that Islam is the solution. This, I think it's a very simplistic and a very naive way to, 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 to put, uh, to, to, to label their ideology. But still, they, 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 they have the right to do so. And the people actually are the, the ones to, to decide on whether to vote for them or not. Uh, on Qatar, I think it's uh, it's, uh, it's an important question. It's a political one. And I think maybe there are people actually in the room that could be <coughs> more uh, more knowledgeable about it than me. But um, but but I think that the Muslim Brotherhood has never relied on Qatar as as an essential source of of uh, livelihood. Yeah, it was one of the not partners, but it was one of the supporters. And Qatar, I think, for the lack of strategy on the end of the Muslim Brotherhood over the past 10 years, but yeah, they, they, they didn't see uh, them as a good investment. Um, the Egyptians, of course, they played it pretty well. Uh, I mean, they have been working uh, on, on different fronts. Yeah, so, some of these fronts are legal or, or like diplomatic missions and diplomacy. And, and, and some others are transnational repression. And clear uh, as, as they. And, um, and, and, the, the, the Qataris, I think that they thought that the Muslim Brotherhood right now, especially with, with, with the new rapprochement between Egypt and Turkey as well, that they will have to find uh, an alternative, or at least they will have to find a way with the Egyptian government. And I think it's true to some extent. So I don't think it's an existent, existential uh, crisis for them, uh, the Qatari uh, support, but I think it affects them. And it's not a secret that actually most of the Muslim Brotherhood finances are not on Qatar. Actually, Qatar is a very small state. Many members of the Muslim Brotherhood are in other Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia, for example. And their assets are all over the world. I mean, people were bragging about it, that they have uh, buildings in, in Malaysia, companies in Europe, and even with Iran. Maybe, I, I don't know, and I didn't ask, actually, because yeah, I, I was afraid to ask one people. But... Uh, but, but, but yeah, they, they, they were saying that you have assets all over. And, and the Qatari, yeah, they provided the uh, cover for some, uh, uh, or at some point. But I, I don't think that the Muslim Brotherhood relied heavily on Just quickly on the Qatar thing. Qatar was like, able to bear the cost of like, hosting the Taliban, able to bear the cost of hosting Hamas. I think like the stuff with Muslim Brotherhood has to do with exactly what I was saying. You get to a point where like, you're just, you're not even a liability. You're, and you're not useful. You're like somewhere in the middle of like being not important at all, right? So it doesn't like you're not helping. You're 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 not poor. You're like us, There's just n- nothing there. We... It's also an indictment himself. Any other questions? They haven't answered every day. We do have a question. And uh, I thank you very much for your presentation. Can you start? Yes, sure. Uh, my name is Carmen. We've actually met before online. Yes. Um, uh, nice to meet you. And uh, I'm a lecturer at King's College in the Department of Studies. I was just wondering whether, in your opinion, after conducting such an extensive you know, uh, field trip, um, whether perhaps uh, the meanings traditionally assigned to organizational survival has changed, you know, particularly uh, in the last, I would say, four or five years when actually we finally, you know, witnessed the complete demobilization of DMD since they seem to have totally, you know, given up uh, what was, what used to be like a sort of uh, transnational advocacy for 
a lot of because of a lot of circumstances and uh, contextual factors also related to exile politics, right? So yeah, I'd love to yeah to hear from you. Yes, sir. Hello, my name is Mohammed from Post Russian Uh just a broad question. The arrest of Renoshi and the demise of the Egyptian Muslim movement. What are the prospects of political Islam in the region? Will they continue to work in a democratic framework or will they resort to violence? That's not a simple question. Thank you very One more question to you. Have a nice three, three kind of combined. Yes. Um, I think in, in my be opening like a, a kind of worms, but it does Muslim Brotherhood only exist in Egypt? But why is we're looking only on Egypt? But is there a scenario where it actually cannot? We will think think about Muslim Brotherhood as not an Egyptian group. Okay, again, I'll start with the last question. So uh, about Egypt, actually, uh, 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 there is a very interesting conversation that I had post-2013, and this was with someone actually whose sister was killed in Rabah, and, and he was telling me, and of course he was insanely sad, but, but he was saying that maybe a silver lining of this is that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt will not be the center of everything. Because actually, over the past 80 years, the Muslim Brotherhood has proved themselves not... Uh, not the, the, the best fit to lead uh, the other Islamists in, in, in the region. They didn't provide an example for, for uh, again, strategy, ideology, or uh, tactics. Um, other other organizations in different... Of course, Egypt is, 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 a, is a big and difficult state to, 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 uh, to be in or to, uh, to do politics in, but still, the Muslim Brotherhood did not provide an example to the other... Organization. So I think, yeah, the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood right now in Egypt, the, 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 I think that yani, given what's, what's happening in Hamas and, or in Gaza by, by Hamas, Hamas has been always considered as, a, as an offshoot or as a, as a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. But right now, no one cares. I, I am a researcher on the Muslim Brotherhood, but I, I haven't looked at the website of the Muslim Brotherhood to know what their opinion on, on the situation is. Because now it's the, 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 the Hamas or, or the other branches, and it happened in Tunisia as well, and it happened in, in other organizations or, or in other countries like Turkey or, or, or uh, Morocco. Yeah, the, the, these um, countries, and, and even Jordan, you know, they, they were able to develop their own organizations and their own, um, not ideologies, but tactics and strategies in a way that surpassed, uh, surpassed the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood in, or the, the Egyptian Brotherhood in, in many ways. So, yeah, I think, I think we, we can see a future. I asked Ibrahim Munir, actually, if, if the, the new Murshid or if the new general guide can be uh, an un-Egyptian leader. And he said, I'd love that, but your <laughs> Ali Ikhwanak, your brothers would not like it. <laughs> but but yeah, so so I, I, I'm not sure if if um, if this will be an acceptable thing for the Brotherhood in Egypt, but I think it's inevitable that the the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood will or or the, the school of thought of the Muslim Brotherhood will have a different manifestation, and Egypt might not be the, the center of it. The other uh question about um the uh, yeah the the, the and and uh, the responses 
of of uh, of different movements and how Islamists could react. I think with the situation in Tunisia, we we can go back to to history. I mean, Mahda, uh, they, they they were subjected to similar uh, and maybe even more uh, pressure and repression uh, in, in the eighties, nineties, and and I think it's it's they they proved that their ideology and their, their thoughts can be developed in, in, in a different way. And I think the anxieties were very important for, important factor in, in, in this. So I I, I think it's, um, it's it's important to note that there could be different reactions, but the majority of the, 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 the people who believe in this thought, they believe that the movement is too important to, to sacrifice, so they will not take any decisions that will affect the, the future of the movement as a whole. So they will not, for example, announce jihad on, on, on I don't know, uh, the governments or something, because they, yeah, even not from the ideology part, from a tactical standpoint and from a strategic standpoint, they will not be able to do it, or not. they will not be able to justify it to their members who, who are mostly middle-class, anti-revolutionary or counter-revolutionary by nature, they will not be able to justify uh, radical decisions like this because the 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 uh, the, the the essence of, of of their existence is built on the organization or the, the the presence of the organization. So if this violence or if this new tactics will affect or will harm the organization, I think uh, they will not go for it, and, and and that's why I believe that the the, the for the Muslim Brotherhood. Many members or those members who, who join violent trends or, or who turn to violence, they were the offshoots, they weren't the essence of the group. And uh, the, 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 the ambiguity of the ideology and the societal factors were much more important in their decision than this. Uh, the, uh, quickly, on your question of organizational survival. My honest answer is I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, how, when do you ever pronounce an organization or that's a, what I would have said by the way? <laughs> <laughs> when do you ever pronounce like an organization or idea? Then I like there's there's still money flowing up. There's still people attending USA. There's still some ideas that are being circulated, but there hasn't they haven't been tested on the street yet, right? Like we don't know how many people they can mobilize. We don't know how many people they can recruit. They're getting into some like human resources problems because. You don't have much to offer, right? There's 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 not much of an incentive to join the Brotherhood anymore. Um, but but it's hard to pronounce anything completely completely that what I can say well like go back to, to, to the question about Ranushil, the best way to get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood or just many Islamist organizations is to just leave them in power for a couple of years, right? <laughs> like I think that if when in Egypt, like had Morsi would not have lasted, even if everything, like everything being free and fair and all that, they probably would like their electoral wins started diminishing as as they as they uh, as like, and it was only a couple of years, right? Like from the first referendum to to the parliament to to, to presidential election, but that and it, like so, like their their support could dwindles because they are faced with some of the crises that we talk about in the book, right? You realize that you don't necessarily know what you're doing, that the uh, sometimes like organization is important, but when push comes to shove, you need to have policies, you need to have different types of uh, of levers of power to continue to mobilize people. Um, so unless they're, until they're in office for like two electoral rounds, I don't think we can pronounce them dead trust yet. What I do believe is that 
if society opens up in Egypt and if politics opens up in Egypt, they are going to have to contend with their past failures, but they also might, they're at a better advantage than everyone else just because like they're an incumbent party, similar to how we think of like an elected representative or whatever, that they can snap back into shape faster and better than everyone else, not for any inherent thing other than they might still have some organizational memory and how to do it. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's on my end. Thank you. Well, thank you all very much for coming and listening. And uh, do remember to take books and uh, tell your friends about it. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you.